So uh, I've always been an aviation buff, but ever since uh, moving to Ohio, that has only increased. I've especially been fascinated with the Wright brothers, who I believe are now the patron saints of Ohio. But I came across this quote the other day while reading a biography on the Wright brothers. And this was when Wilbur, back in 1910, was asked if he were to give a young man advice on how to succeed in life. Here's what he says. He says, if I were giving a young man advice as to how he might succeed in life, I would say to him, pick out a good father and good mother and begin life in Ohio. (laughs) I read that and I realized, man, that's so true. And what a wise man who says, I'm only here because I'm standing on the shoulders of my mom and dad. What a wise man, what a wise person who says, hey, Like, really, I am so dependent upon those who came before me to lay down the foundations of faith for me. And as a parent, that also adds a little bit of pressure, doesn't it? I mean, we moved to Ohio to fulfill that part of the quote, but the rest of it, we kind of are who our kids are stuck with, aren't we? Like, our God gave us a trust of these kids. And we are to invest in them and how difficult that can be. Because the reality is, is that most of our lives don't work out the way that we thought that they would. For some of us, it's the loss of a job that forces us to make decisions or a move that we never thought we'd have to make. For others, it's a divorce that you try to avoid, but has left you in a difficult situation for you and your family. And today we look at a text that is probably the most difficult, and that is sickness of a child that has devastated the livelihood of a family. And so today we look at Mark, the ninth chapter, and we look where James, John, and Peter are coming down from the mountain along with Jesus. They have just seen Jesus transfigured. They have just seen him uh, for who he is as God's son. It is an amazing experience that they have had, and yet they come down from the mountain to utter chaos. Some of you have probably had that experience before, haven't you? You've seen the mountaintop experience. You've thought everything was going just fine. You have one of the best moments of your life, and then you come home to craziness. As Mark is writing this passage, as he is retelling this story to us, he's also wanting us to keep in mind Moses. Do you remember Moses who went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments from God and came down and his face was glowing and everything else? But what happens when Moses came down from the mountain? He came down and they were worshiping a golden calf. Everything was chaos. But in Mark's story, we don't just see the disciples coming down with a word from God, but we see the disciples coming down from the mountain who the word, who was God, who is God, the word made flesh. God himself is coming down and stepping into this chaos. And so here's what we see picking up the text in verse 14. It says, when they came down, meaning Jesus and the three closest disciples, they came to the rest of the disciples, and they saw a large crowd around them, and the scribes were disputing with them. Now normally when we see the scribes or the Pharisees in the passage, that's a pretty good sign that things are fixing for an argument here. 
But that's not actually what happens in this text. We see the attention turns to the family and need. Verse 15 says, When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet Him. And they asked them, What are you arguing about? Jesus asked them, What are you arguing about? And the voice of someone in the crowd who was most in need spoke up. It was the father of the young boy. And he said, Teacher, I brought my young son to you. I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Now, I think it is fitting for us to understand here that this man did not bring his son to the disciples. He brought, them, he brought his son to Jesus. And in the same way, we must understand as the church, we are not here to be the church that everybody brings their kids to, but we are here to be a means of people bringing their children and their family to Jesus. Because they know that Jesus is what they want more than anything else. And we are wise to recognize that that is what we had best give them. I think it's important as well to note here that the most important thing that you and I can do in our lives, whether we are parents or whether we are grandparents or whether we are aunts and uncles or neighbors or volunteers in the children's ministry, the most important thing we can do is to bring our kids to Jesus. The most important thing we can do is to lead our kids to a place where they see Jesus and where they experience Jesus, and the decision is in their hands with what they are going to do with Jesus. In verse 18, the Father continues, he says, Whenever it seizes him, meaning the spirit, uh, the evil spirit, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So I was thinking through this passage today, realized that my son and my daughter, who are by all accounts great kids most of the time, that they need Jesus just as much as this demon-possessed kid does. Are you willing to acknowledge that about your children as well? That they need Jesus just as much as a demon-possessed kid does. They need Jesus to help them overcome their sin, to help give them victory over the grave, to help them find their purpose in this world. They need Jesus more than anything else. And you need Jesus just as much as this demon-possessed kid does too, don't you? We need Jesus more than we need anything else. Which is fine, but then we also have to recognize that that should mean that our priorities are centered around Jesus and not our own schedules or our own dreams and desires. Jesus needs to be at the center of everything we do and the purpose for doing everything we do. If it doesn't align with Jesus, we should scrap it. Do you recognize your kids need Jesus just as much as this demon-possessed boy does? 
First, what we see here is we see the family who experiences desperation. The family who is desperate for hope. You and I have been there, haven't we? We've been in a situation where we had no one to call on but Jesus, where we had no hope but God Himself. When I first came to East Point for an interview, I noticed in the parking lot there were several bumper stickers with the letters and numbers NC4K on them. I didn't know what that meant, but I only needed to ask once, and I found out quickly that it was an organization designed to help parents and families who were struggling with cancer, and that we had several people in our congregation who had been a part of that, some because of their own experiences of a child having cancer, others because they wanted to walk alongside of families who were in desperate times, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's good. I think we need more and more of that. Because God comes down in the midst of this man's desperation. Jesus comes down from the mountain and walks with him. And in the midst of your desperation, Jesus walks with you as well. And in the midst of your neighbor's desperation, you need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. When we were in Omaha and when we were building beds with Sleep in Heavenly Peace, when we started that chapter, this was one of the biggest rewards. Seeing how both the kids and the parents who were in desperate situations, so desperate that their kids were sleeping on a pile of blankets in the floor, how we could bless them in the midst of their hardships, and how often and how thankful they were to see that they were not alone. Let me say this to parents in the midst of talking about desperation. Hardships are where we learn that our plan needs to be greater than our schedule. Our plan needs to be greater than our schedule. If I were to tell you that we are slaves to our calendars today, I think all of you would agree. We have so many things going on in such a busy culture that we run, 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 run. And when we're not running, we just soak ourselves into our phones or to Netflix is what our American tendency is. What if I were to tell you, though, that if you have a schedule but not a plan, then somebody else's plan for your kid's life is going to be what wins out. And God hasn't entrusted coaches with your schedule. God hasn't entrusted other people in your community with your schedule. He has entrusted you with your schedule. And you are the ones who have to make very tough decisions about what your kids will be in and what they won't be in. And how often they're going to go and when they're going to miss certain things. And let me just say, with as many demands as that are on our kids, they need to miss some things every once in a while. What's your plan for your kids? If you just have a schedule but not a plan, how are you intentionally teaching them about Christ? How are you intentionally making sure that you have enough family meals together? How are you intentionally making sure that it's not just everybody else's influence on your kids that matters, but it's your influence that makes the biggest difference? This is not easy in our culture. And if you go against it, and if you say, we're going to have a plan that determines our schedule, you will be ahead of the curve simply by doing that. 
Verse 19, Jesus replies to them. Notice this is to them. This is to the crowds, primarily to his disciples, as we'll see later as this develops. You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? And then an invitation to the dad. Bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. In the midst of desperation, we experience this invitation from Jesus. That He is not standing far off from our problems saying, hope you figure that out on your own, but that I am here for you. And so they brought the boy to Him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. This seems to be the way of Satan right here. Is that when you start to get close to Jesus, all hell is going to break loose in your life. When things finally start on the right track, when you finally start making decisions in your life, it seems that Satan is going to throw everything at you because he knows he is fixing to lose the battle for your soul and for your life. Verse 21, it says, How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the Father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water or has tried to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The second thing we see that this family experiences is the compassion of Jesus is that Jesus is extending His compassion. Bring the boy to me. Jesus is extending His compassion to you and to me, to our lives, so that we might find the healing that we desperately need. Jesus is not coming out of arrogance. Jesus is coming to us out of compassion. Back in 2005, there was a family in the town where I was doing ministry, Mason City, Illinois, population 2,300 people. We had a subway and a cell phone tower, one company you could choose from. In that church was a family, the Bowers for their last name, and their preschooler, little Jesse, who you see the picture of, was diagnosed with a rare cancer, one that wrapped around her spine and even went through her spine that would take a surgery to completely deconstruct her spine and put it back together. And in the midst of helping walk the family through, we went to the small group where Jesse's mom went. And we talked about wanting to host a benefit for the Bowers, not knowing exactly how to do that. None of us had ever done it before. But wouldn't you know it, in the small group that night was another mom named Judy And Judy's little girl had had cancer when she was little. And Judy had walked down this road before, and the first night she was in the small group, she heard of this. And she was able to walk alongside of Nancy, Jesse's mom. So we all decided, let's do a fundraiser to help benefit the family. 
Um, but since it was a basketball crazy town, we said, well, let's do like a basketball fundraiser. I kind of knew a little bit about some, how to put a little bit of that together, but we were all kind of flying by the seat of our pants and said, well, let, well, let's do an auction as well. Let's have people donate things to the auction. I actually bought a puppy at the auction. I don't even know if that's legal, but we did it, and it was a great puppy for my dad for 10 years. Well, it was a great dog for my dad for 10 years, not a puppy for 10 years. Okay, that dog was kind of a puppy for 10 years. <laughs> it kind of was. But everybody pitched in together, and we had this great day where we came together and showed compassion to this family in need. And at the end of the day, we broke $40,000. It was just this crazy symbol of support. It was what they needed to help get through the first of a very long stretch with Jesse's cancer that so dominated their lives. We did that because we were moved by compassion. Our hearts broke for the Bowers. Our hearts broke for Jesse, and we knew we needed to do something. And our mission statement here at East Point is compelled by compassion and called to unity. We are compelled by compassion. Just as so many times in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was moved by compassion. So our hearts need to be moved with compassion for those who are hurting but as I started thinking about that mission statement this week, compelled by compassion, called to unity, I realized that that second part, the called to unity, often follows that compelled by compassion, doesn't it? And as I watched our community suffer with the death of a young girl this week, I was convicted that I don't need to be somebody who needs to have this situation all figured out. But that the first, and most, the first and foremost thing I need to experience in my life is that I need to be moved by compassion in these situations that are tearing our country apart. Because let's face it, we're never going to get to unity with all the talking heads on TV. We're never going to get to unity when it comes to all the anger we're never going to get to unity when it comes through fear. Should we be angry about some of the things that are happening? Absolutely. But what if we as Christians, first and foremost, were absolutely brokenhearted for the girl who was in foster care, who lost her life, for the family who lost a daughter, for the police officer who was put in an extremely difficult situation, what instead of rushing to judgment as the talking heads want you to do, what if we were moved and broken by compassion? And out of doing so, we chose to walk alongside of people who had different skin color than us, a different experience than us, and chose to listen, chose to hear, chose to weep with them, what if we led the way in doing that? Do you think that maybe we could get to unity in that route? And the reality is, is that's because Jesus came and did that with us. He came and walked in our midst. And we must walk a mile in our brother and sister's shoes. We must see the image of God in each person. We must not rush to our talking points, but we must first have our hearts broken. Jesus, in verse 23, 
after the man has said, if you can do anything. (laughs) I wonder if Jesus had a little bit of chuckle under his breath. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately, the father of the boy cries out in this honest, but such a pure belief. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Here we see a family who experiences a broken but beautiful belief. Jesus does not insult this man because he has some belief and a little bit of unbelief, but Jesus hears this man's honest cry that this man is struggling to believe in the midst of this. If you had a demon-possessed kid, some of you are like, I got a teenager, that's close enough. If you had a demon-possessed child, and that had been that way from the time he was very little, you've been, putting, you've, been, you've been enduring this for years, putting up with that demon living in the midst of your beloved son, wouldn't you have moments where you questioned your faith as well? You and I have moments where we question our faith today, and what we see is this invitation from Jesus to have this belief that still is struggling with unbelief, that is still wrestling with figuring things out, because nobody here has it all figured out. And if you raise your hand and say, I do, then let me just be the first to tell you, no, you don't, all right? None of us has it all figured out. But we have a faithful God who invites us in the midst of our belief and our unbelief to come and to find hope in Him. And this family experienced a broken but beautiful belief. And in verse 25, we see that when Jesus saw a crowd was quickly gathering, which remember, Jesus was so opposite of us. When Jesus saw a crowd gathering in the book of Mark, He was fixing to get out of there. Jesus didn't have his own YouTube channel. He didn't have his own following like this. Jesus was just trying to train up his 12 disciples the best he could and help as many people along the way before he turned a mission over to them after he did the whole die for our sins and raise again to life deal. And so when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out, trying to put up a fight, but it knew it had been beaten, shrieking and throwing him in terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. Which I wonder if Jesus just took a little pause there for a minute, looked at him and said, really? Sorry, I have a kind of sarcastic version of Jesus sometimes. But in verse 27, it says, Jesus, taking the boy by the hand, raised him up, And he stood up. And after Jesus had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, as often was the case, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And finally, we see the family who experiences prayer. It mentions prayer at the end of the passage, not because it's least important. It mentions prayer at the end because it's the one thing the disciples were missing. It was the most important element. 
And for you and I, we must remember that of all the things that we do, especially in our families, what must be most important is prayer. Praying with our kids as long as they are open to it. Praying with our spouse and developing that relationship with them. If you are lacking compassion, you need to fill more of your life with prayer. Pray that we will be moved to compassion. If you are lacking wisdom to parents, pray. If you are lacking the power to overcome the obstacles in your life, pray. Should we do other things? Should we pick up a good parenting book from time to time? Well, yeah. But first and foremost, we need to be a praying people. A people that recognize that Jesus didn't stay on the mountain, but came down in the midst of our desperation and in the midst of our trouble and walked in our midst. And He is still here with us. If you can do nothing else, you can always still pray. Do you remember Jesse, who I told you about, the little preschooler with a rare form of cancer? She fought valiantly for six years before cancer took her from us. In those six years, she became an example of courage and strength for the entire community and encouraged so many people both in that community and beyond. And probably the guy who was most motivated to help her was her big brother, Zach. Zach was in high school when Jesse came down with cancer. And by the time she had passed, he was graduated college. He had been so blessed by how the community had come together to help out Jesse and how in particular St. Jude's had helped out her sister and extended her life and gave her family hope that he decided to do something to help other little kids with cancer. And so during Jesse's last year of her life, he organized a fundraising run. You got to understand, this is a, a town of 2,300 people. The only time people are running, if it involves basketball or if it involves chasing after livestock, all right? Ain't nobody out there in their new balance is burning up the asphalt from day, day to day. But Zach did this run that was a fundraiser. And he did this for the first time just over a decade ago, and the thing grew and grew and grew. And at the seven-year mark, this brother who had lost his little sister to this horrible disease and started this run to help others were able to announce that this little town in the middle of nowhere had surpassed the $1 million mark in fundraising for St. Jude. Now in its 11th year, they are well over $1.4 million raised. And why asked, when I asked why he does it, Zach simply answered, so someday big brothers won't lose little sisters to this disease. Friends, that is what it is like to be moved by compassion. That is what moved Jesus to help and to heal so many. And that is what moved him to carry the cross up the hill of Calvary. Because he was moved by compassion out of his great 
love for you. May you be so moved by that compassion that you choose to follow him with all of your life. And may we be so moved by compassion that our tears flow for our community and for our friends who are going through some of the toughest moments in life. And at the end of it all, may we find not only compassion, but a hope that is great enough that someday we will still see young Jesse run again. And that someday will even resurrect us from the dead. That is a hope that is worth living for. And that should move us to compassion for every person. That should move us to see the image of God in them. May we be so moved by compassion. May we as a church be known for our compassion. And may through it, may others see Jesus Christ. Father, we, we come to you. I, I come to you as a person who is so often moved by anger, so often moved by despair, so often moved by fear. And God, I come to you as a person who wants to be moved by compassion. And we come to you as a people desperate for your compassion. Jesus, would you be near to those of us who have an incredible burden on our heart today? Those of us who are struggling to figure out parenting. Those of us who are trying to figure out faith. Those of us who have just gone through or are in the middle of going through the most difficult season in our life. We pause and acknowledge, Lord, that you are near to us. We acknowledge that we believe, we believe, and we beg with you to help our unbelief. May we believe that you are near us today, Lord. May our community of Columbus be so moved by compassion. May the church lead the way in demonstrating that compassion even when we don't understand. May we be the first to come down from the mountain and stand in the midst of the hurting and to offer the compassion, the same compassion that you have poured out upon us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.